Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is the author Rachel Steer, writer of a new book, Betty Friedan, Magnificent Disruptor. We spoke about Betty Friedan, the author of Feminine Mystique, an iconic book of uh, published first published in 1963 and the co-founder of NOW, and an incredibly important figure in second wave feminist politics in America, and also a very divisive figure who often clashed with other feminists of the period, and is a really, I think, interesting lens through which to view the politics of that era, because she, in some ways, you know, is this bridge between an older, more respectable bourgeois culture in which she was raised, and the radicalism that she partly birthed and partly was, um, was eaten by. Um, later in her career. We, in the extended part of the episode, also spoke about her clash with uh, Phyllis Schlafly, the great anti-feminist of the era. That extended episode can be found at louiseperry.substack.com, along with bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So Rachel, I think that most people listening are going to be familiar with Bessie Friedan. At the very least, they're going to be familiar with the feminine mystique. But for anyone who's new to her, why do you think she's such an important and interesting person to study? Well, I actually, I'm not as confident as you are that uh, people will know who she is. Um, she, In some ways, she has fallen uh, off of the curriculum in many universities, so she's not really studied uh, as much uh, as she once was. Uh, but why she's important, of course, is The Feminine Mystique, first of all, which was published in 1963 and was an immediate bestseller and then um, was also quite sensational and controversial um, from the very moment it was published. Um, but, the, but the book, the reason people are still talking about the book, this is the book's 60th anniversary and last week i went to an event celebrating the 60th anniversary of the book i don't know of that many other books from the 20th century that are still being discussed and so the what what was the feminine mystique um i think because it's not read as much as it maybe once was even 20 years ago i think it's important to say that the feminine mystique is a book that was meant to diagnose a condition that was afflicting American women, half, you know, half of the women, half of the population uh, in America. What was the term she used for it again? It's not the malady that has no name. I always get confused. It's the the condition that had no name. The problem that had the no name. The problem that had no name. The yeah. problem that had no name. Yeah, which is such an evocative phrase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was descriptive. The book was descriptive and it covers a wide variety of realms. It covers Freud and his American interpreters. It covers Kinsey and his ideas about sexuality. It covers advertising and Madison Avenue. It covers higher education for women and whether that was uh, a waste of time or you know, how it was specifically being, um, I don't know, promoted to women and what was being taught to them. And, um, and then of course, just in women's magazines, um, which uh, Betty herself had written for in the mid to late fifties, 
and um, which uh, promoted this idea of the perfect wife, or this is how Betty saw it anyway. Um, I think some scholars might disagree with this idea that there was this uh, hegemonic view of housewives that magazines, American magazines such as Ladies Home Journal and so on were promoting, but it, 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 it was an idea that these magazines were promoting. And so, um, so the magazine, the book was meant to be um, descriptive and describe this condition that was suppre oppressing, suppressing American women. And it was meant to raise women as a category um, to the level of Blacks or other groups that were being discussed as being oppressed in society. Um, so I think of it as being the first punch that was thrown or the first scream in America that was heard about this. Not, not, not the first in the sense that, you know, she was the very, very first person to talk about these issues. Other people had talked about them and written about them, but Betty was the first person to really um, make everyone, by everyone, I mean, America overall as a, as the, to, to put this in the, in the idea, um, in the general idea of the culture as, a, as a, an idea that had mass importance, like women should be equal. Women should, women should have um, their own creative and intellectual life. That's really what's at the end of the feminine mystique. There is not any political uh, cri de coeur at the end of the feminine mystique, such as, you know, down with the patriarchy or something. Nobody was talking that way in the late 50s. That came later. Um, and so one of the things is, I think, sometimes from our perspective, that sounds quite modest. Oh, women should have creative and intellectual autonomy. Of course, that's, that's so obvious. Women do have creative and intellectual economy. So why are we paying attention to this book? But I actually think it's not that obvious and it needs to be said and reset. I mean, this is one of the challenging things about the women's movement, I feel, is that things that you would think have, have been settled and should have been settled are not actually settled. Um, and so that's thing number one, why is Betty important? Thing number two is the, a few years later, co-founding the National Organization for Women, which um, was a group, an independent women's group that was actually quite diverse. Betty's idea was that this group would would bring together women from diverse backgrounds and put them in a room together. And um, whether now lived up to that ideal, I think is an ongoing question. But what I would say about it is that it still exists. M many of the radical, more radical feminist organizations that were founded after now do not exist. Um, so I think there's a lot of different things you can say about now, but I think like the feminine mystique now is still here. It's still with us. Is it perfect? No, it is not perfect. I mean, what organization of that kind could be perfect? What book of the type that Betty wrote could be perfect? I think there are certainly plenty of ways to criticize the book, but what I 
uh, my idea, I guess my governing idea is that um, the criticism should not um, occlude the book or the movement or the, the now. Certainly, I think the, those are both the book, both the book and now have lessons, I would say, to teach um, women today. One of the things that people, um, I think, tend to forget about the women's women's lib is it did come quite a, a, a way after the civil rights movement. It was like a decade or something, right? Which is why there's that funny line in Mad Men when, oh, what's her name? Who's played by uh, the Peggy? Peggy is um, talking to um, who's this? You know, who's a woman of the women's liberation movement, right? A professional woman, young professional woman, is saying something kind of mildly feminist to a colleague and he uh, dismissively said what do you mean like a civil rights movement for women how ridiculous right. because there is quite a, you know there's quite right. a, a time lag which yes. is why 63 when the feminine mystique is published is really very early yes yeah and it's also what she's reacting against yes is the conservative reaction against the second world war right yes. that there's been this massive drop in the average age of marriage yes and the yes. baby boom and this real, like, it's quite stunning when you read her, because uh, as you say, it's it's social history, really, that she's writing. And you read her just describing sort of what you'll, what you'll read in a standard women's mag of 1961 or whatever. And it's fairly shocking. <laughs> like, yeah. what will, it's really, yeah, it's really yeah. not, it's, it's worth reading if only to be reminded quite how conservative that decade was. Yes. Yes, and and I think um, that line that you just quoted from Mad Men mm. that happened. That's yeah. that's a line that was pulled from history. That many people said a civil rights movement for women. <laughs> yeah, that's so absurd. And that was one of Betty's. One of the thing that really uh, angered her was that people treated it as a joke. Right. If you read early chronicles of the organizing of now and the founding of now from, say, the New York Times or any newspaper, there is always something in there that's like, ah, this is so funny. Women as a group cannot be considered. They, they don't have they don't have this. They, they're not oppressed. They don't they don't. Um, you know, they don't, they shouldn't have, uh, you know, the whole struggle for equality is absurd. And that really, really angered Betty and it angered many of the women who found it now. And, um, I think when you think about that and you think about what Betty and others endured in trying to put now together, I, I, I just think it's sort of extraordinary. I mean, just the psychic burden of that every day people say to you oh this is so hilarious what you're doing it's it's completely it's not even a cause what you're doing it's not even legitimate yeah I mean what the feminine mystique describes sort of quite specifically right is the is the is the intellectual frustration of educated women who mm -hmm. were not uh, who were not permitted to go into the professions right yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is, I mean, maybe this is a point to talk more about Betty's own um, biography because she both, she kind of lived that and she kind of didn't, right? She had a foot in both camps, which is what's, what, which she isn't always entirely straightforward about in her 
account, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, rather than say she put it that way, I would say, like all of us, she did not have clear insight into her own complex identity and conflict, the conflicts that shaped her, mm. right? I mean, I think you're talking about the fact that, well, she was born in Peoria, Illinois, um, the daughter of, um, you know, in a, in a Jewish family. Um, she was a kind of outsider in that community, um, as was her family. And then she went to Smith College, where uh, being a brainy young person, a brainy young girl in the 1930s at Smith College, a single sex um, institution, she found a kind of place. And later in life, she would always talk about how Smith saved her and made her feel less like a freak. That's how she talked about it. The idea that a woman who put her mind first and tried to uh, live up to her potential, as Betty was constantly saying, that that in and of itself would make you feel like a freak to do, to want to do that. And then after Smith, she initially went to Berkeley for one year in psychology. Um, she had majored in psychology at Smith, um, but she did not want to be in the academy for a number of reasons. Um, I think she found the sexism in the academy very alienating at the grad level. And that was one thing. And then I think another thing was she just wanted to be more in the political thick of things. And so she left grad school, moved to New York and became a journalist for a trade paper, uh, left-wing trade paper, and then got married and um, had three children. And with her husband, uh, they moved to the suburbs. And this was, this was now we're up to the McCarthy era. And so many of her left-wing colleagues from the 1940s were in one way or another suffering um, from the McCarthy era. And she had an FBI file as well, didn't she? I didn't know that she did. In your book. Yeah. She did have an FBI file. I mean, full of errors and ridiculous allegations. I mean, <laughs> but yes, I mean, she wrote, she wrote for this left for two, actually two left wing papers. But then by the mid fifties, she had, um, I mean, I'm not going to say she abandoned that because I think many of those values remained her core values, but um, she began to write for general interest women's magazines while she was married from the suburbs. But, you know, she had three children also and her husband. So she had a family. And this is where I think your point that, um, you know, was she a housewife or was she a journalist, which was it? she... In the feminine mystique, she talks about herself as though she were a housewife. And then some scholars have said, well, she she wasn't really a housewife because, you know, she was doing journalism. Um, and that's true. She was doing journalism. But in the, you know, she wasn't doing that, like in terms of volume, she wasn't doing that much journalism. She was writing. She was writing for these women's magazines. But um, I, I, she, her output was not enormous, first of all, but second of all, she also was enmeshed, particularly in her children's life, lives, um, and, you know, young children, 
and the life of running. She had at one point this enormous Victorian house in um, Rockland County, New York, bedroom community of New York City. So I think there was, you know, there was a conflict in her mind, which was, who am I 15 years after I graduated from Smith? Am I a writer? Am I a wife and mother? You know, and I think, you know, in partly that confusion and thinking about her peers who had also graduated from Smith in class of uh, 42, where were they? And so it's out of, out of that in part um, came the feminine mystique. But I, I, you know, I think that that maybe that confusion in some ways it's unresolved in the feminine mystique itself. You could argue, you could certainly argue that. I guess my my upshot slash bottom line about it is um, she certainly knew enough about being a housewife to talk about it as you know someone who was raising children and so on. On the other hand, she definitely had one foot in this world of journalism. She worked hard at it. She you know she didn't act like the perfect mom of that time in part because she was writing um there were you know there are stories about that many stories about you know she gave her kids tv dinners you know she didn't drive them to school this and that um, you know i think this to me speaks of this is partly why i was so interested in writing the book in the first place is because I think this conflict still remains to some extent, although obviously women populate, um, you know, intellectual life much more than in Betty's era, perhaps, but I think the conflict is still simmering there. Oh, yeah. I mean, on the personal level. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I, well, I mean, one of the, um, one of the, one of the really difficult traps, right, of of representing the housewife position on anything is that sort of definitionally you don't have a role in public life if right. you are. So either you end up with women who maybe used to be housewives and then go back into or, or, or enter for the first time some kind of public-facing profession like writing or politics and then can speak to their past, or you have women who kind of do it both simultaneously a bit part-time which is what I do for instance and is what Betty did and then you're always kind of vulnerable to the charge that you're not you know well if you yeah if you if you really meant it then you wouldn't be working at all <laughs> right <laughs> so right. yeah right if you really meant it right whatever that means I mean so mm. yeah I mean and Betty worried about this all the time mm. she were she worried about um you know, the fact that Carl, her husband, was basically subsidizing her, right, first her journalistic activities, and then to some extent her, you know, I don't know, her, her book-related activities, she worried that that would discredit now. And also another, another thing I just want to, um, just going back to now and Betty's vision for now and getting different kinds of women in the room. She was always very, um, in, in, in the feminine mystique, she kind of disdains volunteerism. Um, you know, women who volunteered for various civic and, uh, philanthropic charitable roles, but then she kind of reversed that or softened on that position. And she'd always, um, you know, when organizing, 
in now and so on, she always wanted to make sure that the house housewives were represented in now and that Republicans were represented and conservatives. And this really was a division between her and many of the other women in now. But there are, um, I mean, there are moments when, for example, she's organizing or helping to organize the women's strike for equality in 1970, where she's, she knows she's very clear. <laughs> she wants housewives, she wants people from the Midwest. She also wants radical socialists or whatever, but. She felt very protective of this group. And it's interesting when you think about the conversation now, today, because it's so polarized, the whole idea of getting women together as a category and organizing that way, I just feel like, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like that is not even on the table. Like mm. that is just you know, that's like the moon, basically, when we, if, if I were to say that to anyone, I recently said it to one person, you know, and, and they said they had tried to do it in their living room. And it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it's so I think it's very, it's very interesting. Again, I don't see, I mean, to me, you know, this is more political and about our time. But I mean, I, I think in the States, when you think about where are the issues that Betty was concerned about, such as representation, equal representation in government and business, equal pay, reproductive rights, childcare. Those are, those are the issues that Betty was interested in. And I don't think that we have made, I mean, we've made some progress, yes, in equal pay, but not that much. I mean, we're not equal. There's not equal pay not in the States. I mean, so the failure of the Equal Rights Amendment in 1982 or whatever it was really, uh, I think made it very difficult for women's issues to become uh, enshrined <laughs> the, way that, the way that Betty and other uh, warriors or pioneers of that era wanted them to be. And so as a result, I, for myself, I mean, I feel that we continue to have these same conversations and then everything is fragmented. And I'm not sure if uh, things are enormously better for women. Well, I mean, it, I think it's I think it's complicated. So like the specific problem that Betty's describing, which is a completely true one, is these women who have who've often been to university, who are, you know, intellectually, creatively ambitious and find themselves in this really isolating suburban environment where, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also in a culture as manifested through all these women's mags and so on, where female intellectual ambition is, 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 is seen as very suspect. Mm -hmm. I'm sure also part of what's going on, right, is a lot of internal migration within the States. So people are also moving to new areas, which is in, in, including, you know, not just moving to the suburbs, but new, moving to new parts of the country, which is embedding that isolation. And, Probably for those women, things have got a lot better. It is, it is now possible to do much more intellectually fulfilling professional work, right? If you're a talented woman, and those, those women have probably been the great winners of the last 60 years. I don't think it's become easier to do that and to combine it with having children. Right. I think, if anything, the, the second shift... Right. As it was later described, yes. is now basically the norm. Yes. And I don't know if that is preferable, <laughs> really. How could it be preferable? Right. 
I mean, probably the women who've done best are the women who, do, who, 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 for whom family life was never a good fit and who now have more freedom to choose not to have children and not to get married. But I think for everyone else, it's probably not any better than it was in 1963. If anything, mm-hmm. it's probably more exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah. Right. I mean, I feel like the choices are limited, mm. right? The, the, there aren't that many. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so what she's, uh, what she's describing is true enough. Um, and her, and as you say, her really very modest suggestion at the end, which is that women should be allowed to have their own, you know, intellectual and creative pursuits. You know, who mm-hmm. can argue with that is clearly true. But whether or not um, the mass influx of women into the professions has actually made women happier, mm-hmm. like survey data would suggest probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Right. Right. What do you think she would think if she were here now after... Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, at the end of her life, she was really focused on her legacy and also what had not been done, what remained to be done. The setbacks, you know, in the States, there had been several um, rounds of Republican administrations that were not sympathetic to women's rights. And so there, you know, there had been a lot of setbacks. And I think Clinton was a disappointment to her ultimately also. And um, so, um, and as you know, from reading her and from reading my book, she also was very, what's the correct word, negative or antagonistic or, I don't know, towards sexual politics, what she called sexual politics, which I would now say are identity politics. And... Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, um, and, and although she evolved somewhat over the course of her lifetime, um, I think she continued to believe in these core values, core ideas for women, um, mainly having to do with equality, not having to do with like down the patriarchy or who you were in the bedroom, (laughs) the bedroom wars, as she called it. So... (laughs) I, I mean, I think, um, I think she would be, you know, she would say there's so much work to be done. Um, you know, I think she would look at me too. And, you know, she, for example, she didn't really think during most of her life, she didn't really think that sexual harassment and, um, date rape would, should be a central part of the feminist platform. Um, so the fact that it is now a central part of the feminist platform, I think her her issue, one of her issues with that, with it becoming those those ideas becoming part of central part of the feminist platform, was that the media would only pay attention to that and would not pay attention to these more, if you will, work a day issues like childcare, etc. I think she would say my fears are just more justified Um, because although there have been strides made in the realm of identity, perhaps women have more freedom. As you say, women now have freedom to, if they don't want to have children, they don't have to have children. 
if they want to live by themselves, they can live by themselves. If they want to live with women, they can live with women, et cetera. Right. The, the, that, that part of people's lives, I think has become much more, I don't know what the right of the word is forgiving. Maybe, you know, it's certainly moved enormously from the new, the, the claustrophobic idea of the nuclear family of the forties and fifties. But I think, Betty, uh, she would she would be very concerned that, you know, there's been the role Dobbs, the rollback of reproductive rights in the states, equal pay. Again, um, you know, the political situation, I, I forget what the numbers are of women um, in po political representation. I think she would be upset that there's remains so much work to be done or maybe upset isn't the right word i think she would feel like you know we need to galvanize the troops the mm. women we need to galvanize women we need to have um you know she was in 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 the, in the 80s 90s and so on she was always talking about like reorienting the women's movement to what she considered the central issues were. Because she had quite a lot of clashes with other oh, yes. members of the women's movement, didn't she? Yeah. She, you mentioned um, at one point her portrayal in Mrs. America, the TV show. We actually did a film, we do like a monthly film club with the podcast where we like watch, a, um, watch something and then have a bonus episode about it. And we did Mrs. America a few months ago. Um, and yeah, she's, she's represented as a bit of an ogre in that show, yeah. right? Like very yeah. disagreeable getting into lots of clashes with other feminists yeah where were the where were the key points of disagreement so she was aligned on equal pay on childcare, on um abortion mm -hmm. access what were the mm -hmm. points of clash with other key figures um well a major clash was as i said betty wanted republicans and conservatives to be included in the women's movement that was yeah. one so she clash. was a big, big tent kind of <laughs> big, right yeah and you know many progressives didn't and mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. um that was one thing and that came up specifically in 71 72 when she was co-founding the national women's political caucus with bella abzug and gloria steinem who were both really on the opposite side of that uh issue and then um, earlier, as I said, she clashed with lesbians and women the, who the lavender wanted, menace, the lavender menace, yeah, and mm. wanted they wanted um, you know they wanted to come out of the closet. They wanted their identity to be more part of the women's movement. And um, as I said, Betty did not think that um, you know she considered that private life. First mm -hmm. of all, but then second of all, she was worried that um, the media would 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 diminish the, in the media's eyes this focus on sexuality would diminish the impact and scope of the women's movement, so that it would become a niche thing. That was her that was her anxiety, if you will. Um, so that was that was a point of of a uh, difference. That is perhaps the really the, you know, the thing that people still don't forgive her for, I would say. I mean, if you read, I'm laughing, it's really not that funny, but if you read in the archives, there are these accounts of women coming up to her at the end of her life and just saying, you know, in 1969, 
you said that, uh, you know, you called us the lavender menace and I still don't forgive you for whatever. And, you know, she really wanted to, of course, move beyond that. She did apologize for it. Um, she saw that it was divisive. Um, I don't, I think, as I said, I think that she still did not, was not convinced ultimately that these issues of sexual sexuality of one's sexuality should be considered, um, a central part of the women's movement. I mean, so that, that's huge. That's, that's huge because for younger women, for women who were, I don't know, 20, let's say in 1968, that was central. And I mean, mm -hmm. I do think Betty in 1968, she was born in 1921. Mm -hmm. So in 1968, she was what, 47, right? Um, and that's huge. I mean, I think that cannot be discussed enough. The fact that she is from an older, I mean, she was from an older generation, essentially, and she had three children also. And so her concerns were not, I am coming out of the closet or I am liberating myself or whatever they were these other issues and also it, it, she had been forged in this leftist post-war realm uh, you know where that sort of thing wasn't even discussed people's mm. sexual identities weren't even discussed in that way so um i mean i think those are two of the really big things yeah that generation gap is a really interesting wasn't it one isn't it that she basically was a she was already sort of a matriarch by the time she yeah. came on the scene yeah. and 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 in some ways held on to i guess the the sort of bourgeois sensibilities of her upbringing oh yes definitely yeah she she held on to them and in the feminine mystique she talks about how the middle class and how the middle class is the best class to make a revolution because mm -hmm. the working class will not have time because they'll be working so hard. And she really, she believed that, you know, she believed and that. It, which is why it's kind of, um, the, 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 the other um, criticism that's so often made of her is that it, the feminine mystique is really a, a book about bourgeois women, right? Mm, that yeah. the working class women have always worked. This particular experience of being kind of cosseted within the home was, yeah. was a, was a, privilege of wealth yeah um and I, you know I think I, I think look you know what she was describing was true you don't have to write a book about absolutely everyone it's completely fine to write a book about a particular experience which was also partly her own experience as we've discussed but also she did I mean she as you as you describe in the 50s she was writing about all sorts of radical leftist stuff you know she clearly her heart was always on the left, yes. as far as I can tell. Yes, her heart was on the left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is why it seems like this slightly unfair criticism of her, that she um, was some sort of, like, deluded fancy lady. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's unfair. I mean, it, you know, I think there's a couple of things about it. One is she was writing the book in the late 50s, and no one was really writing about you know, about the way no one was writing in the way that people quickly criticized her for not writing about in the late 50s, first mm -hmm. of all. But second of all, I mean, there is evidence in, I talk about this a tiny bit in the book, and then I've talked about it in some other subsequent articles that I've written, that there is some evidence in the archives that she initially wanted the book to be more, you know, to include more examples of black women, of Jewish women, for example, she wanted, 
you know, she had written out some of those moments, which I guess these days people would call intersectional, but those were cut. Um, and by her or by an editor? I don't know. It's not clear in the Mm -hmm. archive exactly who they were cut by. I mean, the book was very long, as you know, Mm -hmm. it's very, it's kind of repetitive in places. Um, and I think, you know, probably, well, I know, you know, Norton probably wanted it to be, they wanted it to have a wide range or whatever. I I don't know. I mean, I'm just really speculating what were their reasons because I haven't found any letters. I never found any letters specifically about this. Um, But I'm just, I guess I'm just mentioning it because I don't, I do think she's been characterized as a racist. um, And I don't think that's a fair characterization. I, I would say that also then later in the 60s, along with her, I guess, antipathy to sexual identity leading the women's movement. She also was very, what's the word? She was very resistant to the um, the strategies of Black power and as they would be used in the women's movement. That And those, those strategies kind of, again, came up in the late 60s. Can you talk more about what those strategies meant in, in, in the women's movement context? Yeah, I mean, just along with being anti-patriarchal, right, as women started as younger, many younger women started to be, there was this kind of anti-white strategy that Black power activists used. And Betty's concern was that that strategy would be transferred to the women's movement. So then the women's movement would be, would you start using anti-male, you know, anti-men. And she never wanted the women's movement to be anti-men. She wanted it to, you know, she wanted men to be in partnership with women, you know, and this is a sort of challenge, I think, with the women's movement for certainly for Betty's liberal or moderate ideas of it. So if there's not a clear villain, okay, like men or the patriarchy, then how do you unite? Like it's easier mm. to unite people if there's a really clear villain. As I said, she was very clear. She wanted men to be involved in the movement. And now from the beginning, you know, she she just, she again, thought, she thought that this would alienate large swaths of the United States. She's probably right yeah. about that. Yeah. 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 She was right about it. Yeah, of course she was. Because I think now if you use the word feminist, I'm not sure, like my students, for example, I don't think that they see themselves as feminists or use that word to identify themselves as. Her, yeah, her, her fear about the sort of respectability of feminism is yeah. probably, I think in retrospect, she was probably right. She was, she was right, right, yeah. she was right. So... <laughs> in terms of it being a kind of acceptable thing for for normal middle class people to yeah yeah, yeah. for people just to be pro women's rights but that doesn't mean and and necessarily it could mean something about your private life but the main thing it means is equality in in the job world no sexism in the job world etc cetera, etc cetera. but i don't hear like recently i gave a talk um 
or was it at my university? And I was really struck. There were a lot of young, there were students in the audience and they thought that women had, you know, there were no obstacles for women. And I was really struck by that, that that's what they thought, because obviously I profoundly disagree, but they did think that. And I think that's the reason why they're not interested in feminism. And that's why they don't identify themselves as feminists, because they think everything has been solved. I think that my kind of qualified response to that would be, I think that um, impediments to mothers haven't changed very much at all. Mm -hmm. Probably it is now easier to excel professionally for women if they don't have children. But that's not really a solution to anything at all. Right. But when you're a student, of course, you're not thinking like, oh, what will it be like when I have children? No, of course not. I mean, also, as someone who doesn't have children myself, I can say, you know, I don't know if it is easier. I think, um, I mean, I guess I think there are still prejudices, biases against women in intellectual life, even if they're not on the surface. There's certainly ageism which is you know Mm. betty talks about in one of her later books and i think is really at play in some of these Mm -hmm. arguments yeah i don't know how there can be unity between younger women and and older women i think Mm. that's really that's really a challenge well you have that book you i mean in the uk (laughs) (laughs) written by what's her name victoria smith right Mm, who came on the podcast a few months ago yeah yeah i haven't read that i'm really looking forward to reading that because i feel like betty would have been very aligned with some of the ideas as much as i understand them um in that book do you think yes i mean just thinking again about her uh, the some of the clashes within the feminist movement Mm. Do you think that 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 Betty's being older and also being more plain looking was one of the things that thinking of Gloria Steinem, famously beautiful, you know, was that a source of 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 tension as well? Do you think within the movement? Yes, the way she looked. Again, if you go back to newspaper clippings from the late sixties and early seventies. Um, I mean, there's like open ridicule of the way she looked. Really? Yeah, by journalists. Um, you know, the idea being, oh, she's, she, of course she's a feminist. Mm. She can't get a guy like that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, you know, that's the, the undertone. Um, and I think... I think she was aware of this. I think she also, she thought about her looks as also being Jewish, right? She thought that the way she looked was Jewish and that it set her apart. Yeah. And so when Gloria came on the scene, um, I mean, Gloria was a media magnet, you know, Mm. she just attracted because, and, and that's not her fault, right? That's just the way that the media worked and works, I would argue, although it's mm. perhaps not as overt as it once was. In the late 60s, in the early 70s, Gloria just seized, like she she just attracted all the media and she drew attention away from, from Betty. Um, but Betty, it, it, it's, I want to, be clear though that it, it was not only you know it was about their looks in the sense of the way the culture perceived them 
And I think Betty recognized that this was a factor, but it also was about ideology and they had different visions. Gloria, again, was younger. She was 12 years younger. Um, she was half Jewish. Betty was Jewish. She grew up, Betty grew up in the 30s. Gloria grew up in the 40s. I mean, or the late 40s. I mean, when I think about their conflict specifically, I think about a mother, almost a mother-daughter, although 12 years yeah. is a little skimpy for that. But, yeah, yeah. you know, um, it certainly had to do with youth and age and the idea of glamour mm -hmm. and, um, you know, having someone who could be um, a poster a poster girl for the movement, the women's movement that was glamorous. And Betty really felt that Gloria did not have original ideas um, about the women's movement. And that made her very angry. Mm. Um, and, you know, then there were all sorts of things that just happened that weren't, again, they weren't the fault of anyone. Like, you know, Gloria was on the cover of, I forget what it was, Esquire or something, you know, Gloria was awarded uh, something from Smith College. She also, Gloria went to Smith and Betty went to Smith, but Gloria was the first one to get it. You know, there was this yeah. kind of thing where, yep. um, you know, it, it just fed into this very ugly, what is what, what was a very ugly dynamic. Um, Betty never wrote for Ms. Magazine which Gloria founded and which is now celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And there's a gigantic um, book out about that. What Betty did instead was she started to write in the early 70s, she started to write a column for um, Ladies Home Journal, mm -hmm. which is an interesting choice when you think about it, because Ms was kind of, you know, Ms. That seemed modern and it seemed liberated and it seemed young. Ladies <laughs> Journal seemed older, Midwestern perhaps, um, you know, I mean, and for that, you know, Betty wrote, I don't know, maybe 20 columns for them. And they're all, you know, they're all about her life. They're kind of confessional, but they're not as, um, you know, they can't, they couldn't compete with what Ms. was doing. She was kind of shut out of Ms. and she was shut out of certain conversations. Do you think she wanted to write for Ms. but was excluded? Or I'm, she... I'm not sure. I forget. Right. I forget. I, I think there's one story that Ms. blocked her. I forget mm. whether that's, you know, I mean, by that time, she and Gloria were not speaking really. Mm -hmm. I mean, also, I don't want to paint Betty as some kind of paragon of virtue in this in this fight, because actually Gloria was the one who was, you know, called Saint Gloria is one of her monikers. And she never Betty could be very um, combative, as you say, in in in, in person mm -hmm. and in the media. And she delivered, you know, she she went after Gloria publicly um, she was quoted in a number of places as saying unflattering things and she dished it out. She did. She did. <laughs> she did. And whereas Gloria took, I suppose you could say the high road. And so I think, but all that did not help all of Betty's activity in that realm, like did not help her in the early seventies. It made her seem out of touch to many people or, irrational or just petty, um, you know, 
it, it I think it made it it made it hard to for her to recapture what she had had. I mean, people still came up to her and said, "You changed my life," which was the thing that people who read the feminist came up to her and said. But in terms of the women's movement, she left now. She left the presidency of now in 1970. And after that, I think she felt that the women's movement, the organized women's movement was going in the wrong direction, that it was too radical, that it was too much about identity politics, that it was too um, focused on the strategies of using the strategies of black power. And, um, you know, she wanted to be moderate. Mm -hmm. She wanted to, again, appeal. So and and but she didn't help herself by, you know, she would, um, you know, she would just boom, she was, she would go after you. I, I do, I, I'm, I'm not excusing that and I don't excuse it in the book, but I do think it's really interesting that whenever there's a conversation about Betty, the first thing that's brought up is her character. Um, and then the feminine mystique comes, <laughs> generally speaking, comes after that. Um, not, in our, not in this conversation, but in many conversations that I've had, People want to, you know, they start off talking about, well, she had a bad character. And in fact, the previous biographies, um, I think, also do that to some extent. And it's interesting, right? Mm. It's, I guess, my question is, should being, I don't know what I want to call it, you know, tempestuous or volatile, let's call it volatile, should that just qualify you from your accomplishments? I guess I feel like there's a, there's an inability to have a separate conversation about the feminine mystique mm-hmm. and it's like why it's important. And then Betty and her, whatever volatility, which, yeah, again, I'm not excusing yeah. it. I think there is a tendency to foreground those kind of um, biographical details with female intellectuals. With female intellectuals. Yeah, I had the same conversation with Erica Bakayoki when she came on the pod, and we talked about Mary Wollstonecraft. And so often, people will 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 lead by talking about Wollstonecraft's um, personal life, right? Which was scandalous for the time, right? And people will so rarely do that about Rousseau, right? Who abandoned every child he ever fathered, right? right. Did things much worse <laughs> than right. Wollstonecraft did. Um, it, it's hardly unusual for intellectuals to be spiky. Right. <laughs> Temperamentally. Right. Yeah. right. So, yeah, I don't know. How, I mean, I, I don't know how to change that. Like, I sometimes feel like whatever I say, you know, you can't, obviously you can't change someone's character, especially mm-hmm. if they're dead. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., right, he was sexist. He was right? A philanderer. But yet those don't, those things don't overshadow his enormous accomplishments. And I think in the case of Betty, her character overshadows her accomplishments. That's Mm. a little bit, I mean, I think, I think it's the case. I agree with you. I think it's the case with all female intellectuals or female people in public life, even that they're, um, so I mean, that's probably one of the, you know, the most incontrovertible proofs that we have not achieved equality, right? Is that that is still, 
it's not that it's not that I think we shouldn't talk about Betty's private life, by the way. I think we should talk about it because I think the relationship between the private life and the work obviously is a subject of, you know, biography. That's at the core of biography. But I just again, having um, I'm thinking of this other conversation I had where, um, you know, I feel like people really wanted to, you know, OK, but she was a racist homophobe. Mm. Like whatever I said, it's like, no. She wasn't though, <laughs> you know, it's, so it's, it's, it's interesting. And it, I mean, that matricidal, mm. I mean, we've spoken about it already in relation to, to uh, Steinem and, and Betty, but it, it continues clearly. Yeah. That urge to reject um, right. feminists of the past as being problematic is very yeah. much with us still. Yeah. Yeah. And was there, and was there in the sixties and seventies as well. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, um, I was thinking of that piece, is it Ms. Magazine that, that supposedly their most commented upon essay ever, um, sisterhood kills mostly sisters. Oh, you know, this, I can't remember when it was written, but it was, it was, um, written anonymously by a activist, um, Mm. in, in, um, women's lib about trashing was the term oh. she used the um yes the the phenomenon of, yes. uh feminist turning on an individual who was seen to have transgressed in some way yes um i know what you're talking about yeah mm-hmm. and uh and being cast out and that this was a this was happened quite frequently i, I mean it sounds like i don't know if betty was a real candidate for it because she probably gave as good as she got but it wasn't it wasn't uncommon for this to happen for women to be cast out and often according to this piece it was women who were actually particularly accomplished in some way mm-hmm. there was a bit it's what um it's what australians call tall poppy syndrome when you <laughs> cut down you cut down the tallest poppy because they're sort of inspiring envy or whatever um <laughs> yeah and this this essay anonymous essay about the trashing phenomenon um, apparently got more letters in than any other thing that was published in the history of the magazine. Um, women right. saying, yes, it happened to me. Right. So that that kind of, um, these intense internal battles were clearly a phenomenon from the beginning. Yes. And and people falling out with each other, um, you know, Steinem and Friedan were not unique in that regard, was very common. I mean, it's not like that. It's not like male-dominated political movements are completely immune from that by any means but it is often a marked thing in feminist history yeah i mean i think it's interesting because my friend catherine turk has the historian catherine turk has written this book the women of now which argues that those arguments that now had internally were fruitful in the sense that they led you know they were more fruitful anyway than um than we have considered and maybe that's maybe that's the case at the same time i also think yeah you never you you never hear about this in male dominated political organizations that's true although i'm just thinking what about the republicans in the house like that's sort of catty isn't it well i mean male political rivals do kill each other like (laughs) you know sometimes (laughs) i don't know thinking about other revolutionary movements of the period they were hardly bloodless it's just um right yeah i mean i guess it's to do with men and women usually having different 
sort of aggressive tactics that they use against one another. Women mm-hmm. are more likely to use reputational damage and gossip mm-hmm. and things like that against other women, and men are more likely mm-hmm. to just um, to just kill their rivals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we probably shouldn't be surprised, but it does it does unfortunately mean that there does tend to be this kind of instability in feminist organizing, which we've right. spoken about already. That trying to trying to do big tent politics is very right. hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, was at the time and is still, I think. It is still, it is still, yeah. You've just finished listening to the first part of this episode. It's not over yet. There's an extra half an hour or so, which is um, behind the paywall, which you can access at louiseperry.substack.com and where you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Every paid subscription makes an enormous difference to my ability to produce the show, to, to pay my producers, to do all the things necessary to put out a regular podcast. If you're not able to sign up for a paid subscription, but you value what we're doing, you can support the show in other ways. You can tell people about it. The word of mouth factor is really important. You can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can uh, like the videos on YouTube. All of these things make an enormous difference to my ability to grow the show. Thank you so much.